Let's begin with the collect for the day. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So here we are. We are at sort of the, not the last Sunday of Lent, but the next to last. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. It seems hard to believe that. And it's, I was talking with a friend this week, and we were expecting some rough weather on Thursday, and it didn't actually come to pass. Um, we didn't. We ended up having a little bit of rain, but we didn't have the wind. We didn't have the thunder and lightning and all the stuff that they were predicting might happen here in Asheville. And so we were at least some level happy for that, I guess. I mean, I, I don't mind a good thunderstorm. I'm glad we didn't have flooding or tornadoes or any of that kind of stuff, but I really don't mind a good thunderstorm. It's a great thing for me. In fact, I, I've always loved it. I had a friend and a roommate, in fact, when I was a freshman in college, and he is also pastor now. He's also dean down at um, Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and his name is Charlie Wingard. And Charlie and I used to wake each other up in the night if there was a good thunderstorm, and we had rocking chairs in our room, and we would sit there, and we would watch those thunderstorms across from where we were sitting and had a wonderful vista out across at Suwannee, just uh, perfect, kind of a uh, place for us to be. It was really nice. So anyway, missed that, but as a friend reminded me, we've, we've had some huge snows, actually, into uh, March. In fact, the biggest snow that, that either of us ever recollected was in 1993 in March, and we had a uh, blizzard in this part of the world, and, and it was a, an interesting time, to say the least. It brought back a lot of memories from that time, too, in thinking about that. But uh, also, I can remember since we've been here in Asheville, we've had at least two, if not three, different uh, Palm Sundays when we had significant snow, I mean, like several inches kind of thing. It didn't last long because it got warm pretty quickly, but but on Palm Sunday, several times we've had snow, and other times it's been just cold. Um, when I pastored a church, we start um, as Anglicans, we would start outside the church with the liturgy there of the liturgy of the palms, and then we come into the building, and from there we we come in singing all glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. And it was just a glorious time. I've always enjoyed Palm Sunday for that reason. It's because we are essentially trying to recreate the the idea of Jesus coming into town and and the people um, lauding him that day as the one who would be the son of David, the Messiah. And their shouts of Alleluia, Lord save us. So it's just it's it's an interesting time, and it's hard in some ways not to be able to to do that tomorrow. Um, I'm recording this a day in advance, just so you'll know. But it's it's always a difficult thing, but it's always a wonderful thing. But so here we are, we're getting close. We're two weeks from Easter, and it's hard not to leap forward and begin to do that, um, celebrate Easter, and think about that. And and from a sort of a planning perspective for me, there's always this. I, I can't. It's hard to not leap forward and bring that into view. Today, and it's all because it's always in view. And during Lent, what we do is we put a, a, a veil over the cross in the church and it's 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 to signify that the cross is always before us we can't ever remove it fully from view but we veil it uh in in on purpose so that we can focus on the events that lead up to that and we can focus on our need for a savior and our desire to renew that covenant in a fresh way with the resurrection and so we um we 
we try and put that in abeyance for a period of time, and, and, and it's I like to do that. I really appreciate the church year and the celebration of the church year. Keeps me on a different schedule from the rest of the world, and, and that's important. Um, it's important for all of us, I think, because it keeps our minds focused on something else, and which is what exactly that um, collect just said. <clears throat> that our hearts may be fixed where true joys are to be found. And, and if we keep our eyes on Him and off of the stuff that's going on in the world, um, we're far better off. We're far better prepared, actually, for the things of the world if we keep our eyes fixed on the things above rather than things below. And so we can, we can be a little better prepared for what is going on in the world if we remember and remind ourselves that all we do is should be for His glory. And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about today is what would that look like and what does it look like. And, and I think it begins in prayer in many ways. Um, so let's go and, and let's see what we got here today. So the Old Testament lesson is Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34, and it's the announcement of the new covenant God's going to make with His people. These are a people who are in exile in Babylon. And we don't know where along that timeline this, this might be. But the declaration that comes through Jeremiah is, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So it's both um, kingdoms. It's the one that has gone away and disappeared, actually, about 150 years prior to the, uh, the Jerusalem falling and the, the people being taken into captivity in Babylon, which is where we are in, the, in this Jer Jeremiah passage. Um, the, you remember the, the ten lost tribes? I don't know if you're familiar with that language. It's something I've heard for whatever reason and I, wherever I heard it most of my life. But the, these are the lost tribes. And so those that northern kingdom that got taken into not just captivity but into the diaspora, the dispersion among all the world, and, and they sort of lost their religion as opposed to those who went to from Jerusalem to Babylon, and we believe that Ezekiel there started the synagogue movement in order to continue to teach the people and give them their identity in exile. And so they, so they would know the Word of God, and they would long for the return to the land, which finally ends up happening in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So here we are in, in this period of time, and there's an announcement of the new covenant, and the new covenant is going to be bring about the reunification of God's people. And as we know, it's going to be even more than that. It's not just going to unify Israel and Judah. It's also going to include us. It's going to include the nations. Uh, he says, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It's relationship is what's deeply important there. And so this is breaking a marital covenant is what it's saying. You know, when we look at the um, Ten Commandments, for instance, the preamble to a constitution is one way of saying it. But the other thing is it's it's based on, and everybody, every teacher you'll ever have in uh, Old Testament will tell you this, it's, it's the language and the form of it is what is called a suzerain, and it's a treaty between uh, a greater and a lesser power, and so the king will dictate terms to the, the lesser power, the conquered power, or it could be a voluntary submission to that covenant. Um, and so what you get is this, this suzerain treaty. And But what God's saying is, is this is not exactly like a suzerain treaty because it's different in the sense that I wasn't... That was, 
I was their king certainly, but I was also their husband. There's a there's a more intimate relationship that God's talking about, and and when He talks about taking them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, you can certainly see that same idea of a husband taking a wife and taking her by the hand, taking her from her father's house and into his own house. You could also see it as does Hosea in Hosea 11, for instance, that that he's the one who took Ephraim by the hand and taught him how to walk. So there's this, all these intimate family relationships that are in view. So yeah, it, it takes the form of a certain kind of a treaty, and it is a, that kind of treaty, but God says it's more than that. It's also like a marital covenant, like a, a bride and a husband, sort of a covenant. And what he's saying is that they broke that covenant. Those initial uh, people broke that covenant, and they certainly did when they made the golden calves. And so we, God's saying it's, this is going to be a different kind of a covenant from that. He says, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. What he's saying is he's going to write the, the law on our hearts. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do it by forgiving our sins and remembering those sins no more. He's, he's going to not just give us an external commandment. He's going to show us incredible mercy and incredible grace. But he's also, in a different way, through the power of the Holy Spirit, going to put that within us. In other words, I'm going to change the structure of these people. I'm going to make it part of the hardware and not the software. So you won't input a disk like you used to. You won't download a program and, and then upload it to your system. No, he says, I'm going to upload it to the system and I'm going to hardwire it into my people so that it's part of the architecture of their being. You know, you can look at that a million different ways at, from that perspective in Jeremiah and, and say, well, how is God going to do that? Um, because it's, it's not going to be a matter of just us studying all the time and, and constantly impressing these things, memorizing things. No, it's going to be within us. It's going to flow out from us in our very being. It will become who we are rather than just something we study and then we try to apply ourselves. God says it will become a more natural thing to keep my law and to desire the things that, that I'm promising you. I don't know about you, but I just I would love more and more of that. But the problem is, is that I've got to cooperate with it, and I've got to drive out <laughs> the stuff that's not. And I've got to resist temptation like Jesus did. I've got to refute it with the Word of God. And I have to really, truly see the kingdom the way Jesus told us to see it when he taught the parables of the kingdom, as treasure hidden in a field, as the pearl of great price, as all those things where we, we, we recognize its surpassing value and we get rid of everything else in our lives or anything that hinders us from seeking after that kingdom. You know, uh, you know driven people, right? You know people who are driven to succeed in whatever field they're in, whether it's an athlete or a business person or whatever, and they don't have time for everything else in the world. They only have focus, attention on, on what's most important to them, and that's what we need to be as Christians as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. 
and, that, and that's the call of this and the purpose of him writing that on our hearts, is so we will desire to do the things that kingdom people do. We'll also desire the things that he promises and the things that he wants to give us instead of desiring everything else in the world. But it's a matter on our part of, of pressing out all those other things, but the only way we can truly do that is to, to say, God, give me, a, give me a vision for your kingdom that's so compelling that nothing else will matter in comparison. Give us eyes like Jesus and give us a heart like Jesus. And that's the truly important part of everything. And, and because what Hebrews lesson tells us is, is Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Here we are again with this sort of relational language about son. And, and we know that that's an important thing. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. But we have the right to become children of God as well. And so when he says, today I have begotten you, then then he is submitting to the will of the Father. And it's odd language sometimes to hear that when we're talking about the three-in-one God. But, but in the days of his flesh, Jesus submitted himself completely to the will of his Father because he saw what was in mind. He kept the main thing, the main thing always. And then God says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who we don't know where he came from. We don't know who made him a priest of the Most High God. We have no earthly idea. And so this is that same way. It's not the priestly line that Jesus comes from. And so he's not returning and is becoming what he was by virtue of being born to the right family. No, it's this is God is laying hands on him and saying, you are that priest. And the reason we believe Melchizedek to be a priest of the Most High God is partly because it says that, but also because Abraham gave sacrifices to him. It's the only time that Abraham made sacrifice to another person was to this man Melchizedek, who was also the king of Salem, which is from Jerusalem, which means peace. And he comes out, and Abraham makes sacrificial offerings to this priest. And so then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, there was certainly a point in time when it didn't look like he was heard because of his reverence, and that's as he was dying on the cross. But God did save him from death. That's what the resurrection is all about, that death isn't the final answer. And so if death is the final answer, then Jesus is indeed saved from death because he is alive. And so are we. By the power of the Holy Spirit, even today, we have that life within us because we have the sure and certain hope of the resurrection within us. And our belief in Jesus Christ guarantees us that we will share in his reward, in his resurrection, and his righteousness. So God heard his prayer, answered his prayer, even though it didn't look like it at one point in time. And so it's a beautiful and a wonderful thing for us to be able to think about that because there are always a possibility of a great reversal, just like the people in Jeremiah are hearing about. There will ultimately be a great reversal. And, and here, when Jesus is crucified, there, there certainly looks like there's no possibility of a great reversal. But then suddenly, suddenly... And wonderfully and beautifully there is. And so what the writer of Hebrews continues to tell us is although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's, it's a remarkable thing to think of Jesus learning obedience through suffering, but the reality is that he had never suffered anything 
until that point in time, right? I mean, there's no there's no suffering at all among the Trinity, and then you forsake that for the sake of something greater for a season of time. And so there's something gained in the flesh, something gained in the incarnation, not just by us, but by Jesus as well, because he experienced something that he never otherwise would have suffered had he not taken on flesh. What a great condescension that is. What a great vision for the kingdom that is, is to understand that, that these days matter. There's something to be gained here in the flesh. And so we can't too strenuously long for the coming of the kingdom and the coming of, of, of death in our own sake so that we can have resurrection and experience that eternal life. No, there's something to be gained here. There's something that, that's gained through this life. And so we should value it greatly for its value later. And then the writer goes on to say, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the king of Melchizedek. And so there's this obedience idea, and Jesus is going to talk about that in the gospel himself. He's going to talk about serving him. And that's important that we get that right, that we understand what it is that he has called us to do and what he has equipped us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to serve him by our, our way of life here on earth, by making ourselves available to him for whatever need he might have at any given point in time, whether that's service to other people or whatever that looks like at any given time. We've got to follow him, and in following him, we've got to be prepared to take up our cross and follow him as well. And so we, we sometimes don't prepare people for that very well in this life now. In the 20th and 21st century in America, too often what we're doing in the church is we're preparing, each, preparing people for being blessed, preparing them for the best life they could ever imagine. And, and that's true if you're seeking after the kingdom, not if you're seeking after something else. If your best life isn't the kingdom of God, if that's your, if your greatest vision, your fondest hope is something on earth, then you're not living your best life now because no matter what you have, it's not really enough. And if you don't have whatever you don't, whatever you truly want, then you're not living your best life, and you're not encouraged ever in the gospels or in Paul or anywhere in Scripture to seek after anything in this world. And so what, how are you to find your best life? Um, if, it, it, if it's just things of earth, then, well, good luck with that. Because I'm not sure that you're following Jesus, if that's the case. So in the gospel, it, it's an, it begins with an interesting sort of a uh, happening, and that is, is it's, it's Passover. And so among those who go up to the feast are some Greeks. And, and you can presume that these Greeks are people who are seekers. They're proselytes. They've, they've probably done everything except become circumcised um, to become Jews. They're, so they're, they're interested in, they're attracted to the uh, Jewish religion and Jewish belief system. And so they're there for Passover, and they're kind of checking things out. And we can guess that they've heard something somewhere along the way. They probably came in with the other pilgrims. And so they've probably heard or seen something about Jesus. And, and it's possible, quite possible, in fact, that they see him come into the city to all the acclaim. And so they come, and they come to Philip. For some reason, they find Philip, who's from Bethsaida, we're told. And they come to him, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. He, he's a celebrity. Of course you do. 
of course people want to see Jesus, but they're seeking still. They're, they want to know who this Jesus might be. They're, they're looking for a fuller understanding. And what is what happens next? Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus. It's, it's a big moment, right? I mean, he's becoming truly famous. It's, it's like hitting so many subscribers on YouTube or whatever. Your, your measure of success is, you know, you're, hey, you're reaching the world here. This is no longer just the people in and around, you know, our area here. This, these are people, these are Greeks. They're people from, from the world who are coming and they're seeking after you. And so they tell Jesus this. It's, it's an exciting moment, right? You got fans now. You got people who, who really want to see you and want to know more. And so Jesus answers, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, <coughs> loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, Philip and Andrew are standing there and they're looking at Jesus. And you can just guess what's in their minds. I mean, he's not even done yet. He's still got a lot more to say. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And again, you're Philip and Andrew, and you hear this, and you're looking at him, and you're thinking, so do we bring him in, or what do you want to do about these Greek people? Because they don't ever seem to be addressed anywhere along the way, and John doesn't tell us whether they ever came or not. And so, that, that, But it's almost like an afterthought, but, but it's not an afterthought, because Jesus' response is responding to what's probably in the hearts of Philip and Andrew, and that is that, that you're drawing the world to yourself right now. And so we don't really understand <laughs> what it is you're saying, but, but now the world is coming to Jesus. And so he knows. Now is the time. Finally. After all this time of saying, my time has not yet come. Finally, now, in this hour, the time has come. And, and it looks for all the world like, right, that, that lifting him up is going to be making him king because that's the way the people proclaimed him when he came into town. And now these Greeks are coming as well. And so maybe the time of Messiah has finally come. And Jesus proclaims that it has and then prays that the Father will glorify him. And glorify his own name. Because that's the glorification Jesus is truly seeking after. It's, it's Father, glorify your name. And everybody, surely, when they hear this voice from heaven, even though they, some think that it was an angel, some think it was thunder, whichever one it is, people have to believe, okay, cool, the time has finally come. This is unbelievable stuff is getting ready to unfold. We're coming into the Messianic age, the age that's been promised through the prophets for all these years. We're going to come into this glorious new era where we are the center of the earth, not the Greeks are the center of the world. Greek culture is going to pass away, and it's going to become Jewish culture that becomes the ruler 
of all things and the measure of all things. And that's for all the world what it would have sounded like to hear Jesus pray that prayer. But in the middle of all this, there's still this love in your life and losing it. And But when I am lifted up from the earth... I'll draw all people to myself. Sounds sort of like, right, a king. Nobody there surely thought that he's talking about death, that he's going to die. He's getting ready to be glorified. How could that possibly be anything other than the messianic reign, Jesus sitting on a throne lifted up? But John then has to amend that and said he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says in this prayer, he says, Father, save me from this hour. I mean, it sounds like, okay, are you saying that you are a uh, going to become something else? You know, Do you not want this role? And then he says, no, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. The whole purpose for which I came to this earth is about to unfold, and it's not what anybody in this crowd thinks. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. He talks about the whole idea of a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. And so Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not praying that God would save me from this hour. I'm praying that he'll be glorified in it, not me, him. Because it's certainly not going to look like glorification in the short term. It's going to look like the worst possible thing that could have happened and exactly the opposite of glorification. It's going to be the greatest indignity anybody could ever suffer, much less the Son of God. And it's amazing that that could possibly be, that Jesus could have said, I came for this hour. Everything else was preparation and prelude to what's to come. And you're not going to believe what's going to happen next. And, oh, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, my disciples. And I'm telling you, this is the path you also must trod. That you've got to follow me. You've got to follow me wherever I go, is what he's saying in there. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And that includes possibly, potentially, some terrible situations that you're going to find yourself in because you're following him. But you know that you're following him and he's there. And, but that's the reason that God has to say fear not so many times because, because the life of those who follow him are going to be filled with plenty of opportunities for fear. You're going to be in places you don't want to be. And I don't mean that just physically. I mean it metaphysically as well. I mean it um, in, in ways that, that I could never have imagined 20-plus years ago, when 25-ish years ago, whenever I said yes to God, yes, I would go to seminary, yes, I would do whatever He called me to do. You know, it's not been easy. There's been a lot of difficult times along the way, but I wouldn't trade them for anything else in the world. I wouldn't go back to the life that I had before that because it was not a life with him at the center of it. It was a life of me at the center and money and whatever else, you know, that success and you're always chasing it and always there's a there's somebody better than you and so you're going to have to prove yourself to be better than them. And um, I, I just, 
you don't have to go to seminary and do what I do to, to be that guy and to take that thing out of the center of your life and make him the center of your life. I've known some incredible lay people who have always kept the kingdom first in their lives and God's glory rather than their glory first. People who did everything that was ever asked of them and never asked for any recognition for that, only that God would be glorified by what they do. And that's the call on our lives as Christians is to seek that, to pray as Jesus did. No, don't save me from all the suffering possible in my life. Be glorified in it. And, and don't glorify me, glorify yourself. And that's Jesus' prayer. And it's because of that that he's a son. He learned dependence upon God, which is faith. It's trust. It's every single bit of hope. And the principle for us as his people and the principle for worship in the Anglican world is, is a very simple and straightforward one. And it's the reminder of that last line of the Jeremiah passage, we're going to become those who know God because he forgives our iniquity and he remembers our sin no more. And the principle for our worship is embedded in the psalm. It's only three verses of Psalm 51 today. And it's the very first verse where you see the principle for Anglican worship, and it should be the principle for all our worship and all our lives, in fact, because our lives should be acts of worship. And here's, here's the passage, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, in your great compassion blot out my offenses, wash me through and through from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I'm struggling, I'm suffering because I know my sins. Lord, please, in your loving kindness and your great compassion, blot out my sins. If I see them, you must see them, and how hideous they must look to you. But in your loving kindness and your great compassion, blot them out so that neither you nor I ever see them, think of them again. Our worship is always based in the great mercy of God which is the principle by which he writes that covenant on our hearts.